You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Atticus World this week, broadcast across Australia, live from the community of uh, 3CR in uh, Smith Street in Collingwood in Melbourne. This program is broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. I'm afraid over the last two weeks you've heard pre-recorded programs. I know, they could have been boring, they could have been exciting. doesn't really matter. We're back in the studio, hopefully for the rest of the year, depending on health concerns. So... What's anarchy? Anarchos without rulers. It's a society without rulers, not without rules. What gives rulers the ability to do what they do? Inequalities in power and wealth. Very simple equation. You don't need a PhD from some, you know, sandstone university or Cambridge or Oxford to understand what anarchism is all about. It's about the struggle involving the devolution of power and the, it's a big word isn't it devolution sharing of power and holding wealth in common very common concepts which people have been struggling for for thousands of years so anarchism is not something which was invented in the 60s or even at the end of the 19th century and our costs without rulers is a significant part of the human story and although we may be on the margins of the margins of the margins these concepts are still around and when you see the carnage which is created around the world by people who exercise power and have wealth you begin to understand how important it is the anarchist struggle is and continues to be. My name's Joseph Toscano, and for many, many decades I've been hosting this program. People say, do you get depressed? I say, no. Why should I be depressed? I'm here. I'm speaking to you. I'm trying to, you know, look at things in a different way. I'm trying to influence people. 
why should I be depressed? And then they say, nothing seems to change. Things do change. Human history is about change. It's about struggle. Unfortunately, in 2024, or the 21st century, we think human history began at, uh, when we woke up this morning. No. We stand on the shoulders of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of activists, many who have sacrificed their lives and their livelihoods in order to ensure that the excesses of the concentration, which occurs as a consequence, the concentration of power and wealth are once and for all overturned. Our philosophy is very simple. It's not about it's about tipping over the apple cart, so those apples for all. It's about soaring the uh, corner of a table so the table collapses. That's what it's about. It's about ensuring the excesses which we see in the twenty first century are part of the historical account, not the future. All right, let's move on. It's difficult, this one. The West averts its gaze as the Gaza carnage continues. It's not a war. It's carnage. It's slaughter. Now, there may be one or two people listening to this program who remember the Battle of Britain, which occurred in August, uh, sorry, uh, I think May to September 1940, where the Nazis attempted to bomb the shit out of the British. And during the Battle of Britain, 23,000 civilians died. Most of them were adults because the British had the luxury of sending their children, over 900,000 of them, from their major cities into the countryside so they wouldn't have to um, suffer the consequence of the indiscriminate bombing by the uh, Nazis. Unfortunately, in Gaza... In 2024, as I speak, the civilian death toll has now reached 23,000. That's 23,000 Gazans murdered, killed. You can use whatever word you like. One, at least one third of them children under the age of 12 as a consequence of the invasion of Gaza by the Israeli army. Now, it's interesting. Hamas were not... The Hamas in Gaza have not been the easy beats the Israeli army thought they would be. And currently we're seeing a, a different strategy being adopted by the Israeli army. Not in terms of civilian casualties. Civilian casuals, casualties continue ad nauseum. 200 today, 150 tomorrow. I'll give you an example. How many of you have walked 23 kilometres or run 23 kilometres? Okay? It's a long distance. Now, of every Gazan who's been killed, bombed, murdered, every civilian stood side by side, the line of Gazans that have been murdered would reach 23 
kilometers. That gives you an extent of the human casualties, and we're not talking about the carpet bombing which initially occurred in North Gaza and the bombing which continues to occur. Now, as I said before, the Gazans didn't have the privilege of sending their children outside. And when we talk about civilian casualties directly related to the war, that's about 1% of the population, let's not forget the other 2 to 3% that have been wounded, and let's not forget the hundreds of thousands who have no access to medical aid, medications that people need. So this is a this is carnage. This is the worst carnage we have seen in the twenty first century. Irrespective of the Hamas brutality which occurred when they invaded southern Israel, the fact is that history in Gaza and in Palestine did not start on the 7th of October 2023. This is a struggle which has occurred for decades, almost 100 years. And if the Israeli government thinks it can eradicate Hamas from Gaza and stop its continued support in the West Bank and many parts of the world, it is mistaken. It's a little bit like the United States during the uh, Vietnam War thinking they could actually eradicate the Viet Cong. It doesn't happen. This is not war. We're not seeing one side with tanks and another side with tanks as we see between Ukraine and Russia. We're not seeing one side with planes and another side with planes, one side with missiles and another one side with missiles. This is a slaughter. And the fact is, they want us to forget. It's now reached the back pages of the news cycle. It's no longer the dominant issue. And in many regards, it is still the dominant issue because it is the 21st century and we are seeing carnage reminiscent of the pillage and murder that used to occur when cities fell during the Middle Ages. Now, the West, that includes you and me, we're part of the Western, you know, alliance, its lack of action, its lack of ability to halt the carnage, create a ceasefire, work out some type of dialogue between the opposing forces, is a significant issue. So what can you do? Well, obviously, you can go to the protests which occur across the city which everybody seems to ignore. But there is one thing you can do. You don't have to go to a protest. Ring up the Foreign Minister, Madam Wong. Ring up her office. Email her office. Ask for the Australian 
ambassador in Israel to be recalled to Australia. That's right. To show the Australian people's discomfort and displeasure at the carnage which is occurring in Gaza. Another little thing. So, yeah, it's very simple. Why can't we recall the Australian ambassador in Israel back to Australia to highlight our concerns about what is occurring in Gaza? It's a simple act. And the more foreign governments which recall their ambassadors from Israel, the more the Israeli government will begin to understand that the actions it is taking are just not acceptable. A few other little things which are annoying me. Now, when we look at the Ukrainian-Russian war and we look at the coverage, especially on RT, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, you don't actually hear Russian spokespeople, you know? But when you... Look at any coverage of the slaughter and carnage which is occurring in Gaza. On every report, we have an account by the Israeli government that what they are doing in Gaza is according to international law. Extraordinary, isn't it? Just extraordinary. And remember, Gaza isn't this huge area. It's an area maybe the third the size of Melbourne. Thousands of air sorties. Tens of thousands of troops. Hundreds, if not thousands, of tanks. And bulldozers. So the least we can do is pressure the Australian government to recall the Australian ambassador from Israel to highlight our concerns about the overreaction and the overreach which is currently occurring in Gaza because, as I said before, the death toll is now, the civilian death toll is now greater than the civilian death toll during the Battle of Britain in 1940, during the Second World War. And if it continues like this, 100 Palestinians dead today, 30 or 40 of them children, another 100 tomorrow, maybe we get to 100,000 by the end of 2024. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. That's the Community Radio Network. Now, I'd just like to remind people about the Tanaminaway Mulbohini commemoration, which occurs in Melbourne on Saturday, the 20th of January, 2024. And I'll give you some historical background, because as I keep saying, our story, that's what history is. It's obviously, it's his story. It should be her story. His and her story and everybody's story. Everybody's story it didn't start on the 1st of January, 2024, or the 10th of January, 2024. Obviously... The story of the Australian continent and human habitation stretches over 65,000 years. The colonisation process, which has had such a devastating impact on First Nation people, is something that um, continues today. 
Now, the interesting thing about the genocide which occurred, and, and the word interesting is not a correct word, obviously, that occurred as part of the colonisation process is that Australia is based on three principles. One is genocide. Two, three, labour. F-R-E-E, labour. And three, F-R-E-E, land. Because of the first 50 or so years of the colonisation process, which led to the dispossession and destruction of this country's First Nations peoples, over 250 sovereign entities, what we saw is that the land then became the property of the British government. At the same time this genocide was occurring, we saw the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the old art, England. And the Industrial Revolution required raw materials. And that raw material, which was exported to uh, England, was wool. Now, obviously, when you remove, by any means possible, the original inhabitants, you've got these great areas of land. Now, the thing about the first 50 years of colonisation, especially on the East Coast, was the fact that this land was made available, that's right, available to gentlemen, these are not my words, these are historical accounts, to gentlemen of name and quality. So gentlemen of name and quality, usually the uh, fourth son of some noble human being, a noble, noble because they could kill without, you know, conscience, were sent to the Antipodes to increase the fortunes of the family. And extraordinary tracts of land in the 1840s and 1850s were given to these gentlemen of name and quality. Now, the trouble is when you have sheep, the little pests need a little bit of looking after, especially when you can't fence off the the area you've been gifted. And we're talking about, in the state of Victoria, which I'm familiar with, the colonisation process, we had 700 squatters basically owned Victoria by the mid-1840s, within 10 years of the colonisation process beginning. And the trouble with sheep is you need people to look after them. You know, you need people to look after them. So what was the next thing the gentlemen of name and quality were able to access? Free convict labour. Just to remind you of a little story which occurred on the 1st of March 1822. A gentleman by the name of James Strater on a MacArthur sheep station in New South Wales was charged, that's right, charged with the heinous crime of encouraging his master's servants, that's right, encouraging his master's servants 
to combine. That's the key word, to combine, to oblige him to, imp- to increase their wages and improve their rations. Now, this gentleman, this convict, it could have been a ticket of leave man, was placed before a court in Glebe in Sydney on the 1st of March 1822, and he was found guilty of the heinous crime of encouraging his master's servants to combine, that's right, to combine, to oblige him to increase their wages and improve their rations. The fact is they weren't actually being paid money because it was the old company store process. They were basically getting, you know, a corner of a barn or a slab hut to sleep in and a bit of food. And he received the penalty of 500 lashes, which most people don't survive. 500. Think about it. 500 lashes, and if he survived the 500 lashes, he was then to be solitary confinement and bread and water for a month, and if he was survived that, he was sent to Port Macquarie, a convict settlement on the west coast of Tasmania, which made Norfolk Island look like a picnic, where convicts would murder, murder other convicts in order to be hung. That was his crime. And why did, was he encouraging his master servants to combine, to oblige him, to improve their wages, to increase their wages and improve their rations? Because when he was transferred from one squatter to another as a piece of garbage, his flour ration was reduced from £17 a week, that's to £7.5 a week, And obviously in 1828, and I'll talk about this another day, the Masters and Servants Act was uh, introduced. And what it meant is the gentleman of name and quality had access to land, which they were given, because they were gentlemen of name and quality, which had belonged to Indigenous people who'd been eradicated in the most foul manner, and free convict labour and ticket of leave men in order to increase the profits of their little noble family. So what's Tanaminawai Morbohina got to do with this? Well, as you know, the first settlement in Victoria occurred at Sorrento in 1803, and I think it was Lieutenant Collins who was in charge, after which Collins Street is named found that they set up camp in an area which didn't really have any fresh water and they were ordered to go to Tasmania and set up a colonial outpost. Now, unfortunately for Mr Collins or Lieutenant Collins or General Collins or Naval Collins, whatever he calls himself, was called, there were First Nations people in Tasmania And a 33-year war began. That's right, 33-year war. Which led to the deportation of around 323 First Nations people from Tasmania to Flinders Island. I think it was in 
1936. So of original population of around 20,000, there were 363 survivors who were sent to Flinders Island in 1836. And by 1838, because of the appalling living conditions on Flinders Island, the number of First Nations people, Tasmanian, had been reduced to 89. Now, Mr Augustus Robinson, who was the protector of Aboriginals, and we won't go into that, offered the services of his Aborigines, that's right, to the New South Wales government under Governor Gipps, which was responsible, that's right, responsible for the new settlement, the illegal settlement, which had been established by Mr Batman on the shores of the Yarra. And he offered his blacks in order to civilise the Victorian blacks. Now, Governor Gipps was a little bit concerned, and he was, he was, and Governor Gipps was told by the Victorian gov- by Tasmanian government governor, the great thing about removing the last of these people from Tasmania to Flinders Island is that real estate values doubled in price, and the same thing could happen in Victoria. So, Mr. Robinson was asked to bring four people across to set up Aboriginal protectorates for servants. Now, Mr Robinson, full of himself, been paid $1,000 for ensuring that the remnants of the five tribal groups in Tasmania were sent to Flinders Island. In fact, that's a lot of money, £1,000 in those days. Not like today. He, um, he brought across... 19 of the 89 survivors to Melbourne. Now, the New South Wales government refused to pay rations for rations for all these mouths. And five of them, once they were cut loose, five of them, Tanaminaway, Morbohina, two Aboriginal men, and Putirana, Traganini, and now my memory fades me, Planobina, Putirana, Planobina and Traganini, three Aboriginal women, went off into the Mornington Peninsula and the Dandenong Ranges, hoping that local Aboriginal people who are now facing destitution and starvation, being, you know, herded off their lands, would join them in a revolt against the colonisers. And they began a campaign in late 1841, which led to hundreds, if not thousands, of squatters and their uh, servants being driven out of the Mornington Peninsula and Dandenong. Now, the thing about their campaign considering the atrocities they had uh, experienced in the 33-year war in Tasmania, was a relatively tame one. I think two sealers were shot, but their strategy was very simple. They come up to a squatter's camp, remove people from the uh, from the hut, burn down the hut, take away the food. 
this forced the squatters to go back to Melbourne. And Melbourne at that stage was a, had a population of about 7,000. Unfortunately, the local Aboriginal people didn't join the revolt. Many of them, prom- being promised guns, actually tracked down this band of five, Tanaminua, Mulborhina, Planobina, Putirana and Truganini. And on the 25th of November... 1841, there was a minor miracle. Their camp encampment was surrounded and I think about 50 troops, vigilantes, poured, you know, shot hundreds of rounds into the camp. One was wounded. A planobino was grazed on the head. The rest were eventually arrested, taken to Melbourne and tried. So this is not one of those slaughters that... You know, you give them poison flour or smallpox-encrusted blankets or you hack them to death or you remove them from their, uh, uh, you know, the resources they require in order to survive and die of destitution and starvation. No, this this was the British Empire. The empire in which the sun never set the empire controlled by gentlemen of name and quality. And they found themselves before Judge Willis. There was a little side street named after Judge Willis in Richmond. And Judge Willis was the judge who many thought it was cracked. He'd been sent from Sydney to Melbourne because he was causing so much trouble for Governor Gipps in New South Wales to start off the Supreme Court in Melbourne because the trouble was that in those days if somebody was sentenced to death you couldn't hang him in in Victoria you had to, you know, if it was a capital offence you had to take him to Sydney to go on trial and then to be hung it was very expensive so they thought they sent a Supreme Court judge to Melbourne they'd solve that problem so Tanamanua Moorbohina found themselves before Judge Willis and a jury in uh, late December, I think it was December the 21st, 1841. And after a trial, and you'll find this very interesting, Redmond Barry, yes, the same Redmond Barry who was involved in the Eureka trials and the same Redmond Barry who sentenced Ned Kelly to hang in 1880, it's the same one, was actually the public defender. Young, ambitious Irish public defender And he raised a very important question. He raised the question of whether the British colony in Australia had any legal standing because they had not entered a treaty, into a treaty with the local Aboriginal population, which was the prevailing law in England at that particular point in time. But that was dismissed. So when the jury came back after a half-hour deliberation, they decided that the gentlemen, you know, were, uh, were responsible for the murder of the two sealers, a Mr Cook and an unknown sealer. And, but they asked Judge Willis to show mercy because of the extraordinary situation these five people had found themselves in. Now, the jury found Tanaminuwea Mulborhina guilty, but they acquitted the three women, Plan Obina, Putirana and Thraganini, who eventually 
got back to Flinders Island in late 1842. Now, Tanaminawai Mōbōhina had the honour of being the first people hung in Victoria. That's judicial execution. And they were sentenced to hang for resisting colonisation. That's what they were sentenced to hang. This was not the smallpox encrusted blanket, the poison in the flower, the hacking to death. This was simply, simply the British Empire saying, if you resist colonisation, this is the price you pay. Now, when I first came across this story, I think it was about 2000, could have been, I was just amazed. It wasn't part and parcel of the uh, discussion or the history of uh, Victoria. So the Anarchist Moon Institute held a few public commemorations on the 20th of January to mark the event. And then we formed the Tanaminawai Mōbōhina Commemoration Committee and after about a 10-year struggle with the Melbourne City Council and reactionary media in the state of Victoria, we were able, with the assistance of the Melbourne City Council, which came to the party a little bit late, we were able to have a monument established to Tanaminawai Mōbōhina at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, which was a bit of a miracle. Not the actual struggle, but the fact that the little area which was, which was around about, was basically the site where the, uh, the two men had been uh, hung, officially. So every year we have a commemoration. Now, it's no big deal. But it is a big deal. It is a big deal because how many monuments exist in this country to the frontier wars? Very, very few. This is the only one that I'm aware of significant monument in a major capital city. Not just a little plaque here or a little plaque there, but a significant monument. It is a place of reflection. It has a garden planted around the monument site with indigenous plants from Tasmania and Victoria. It's there. So join us on the 20th of January, 18... uh, God, 20th of January 2024, midday sharp. The first hour of the ceremony will be broadcast live on this on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne. And if you're listening to this program anywhere in Australia, you can actually access it by going to 3cr.org.au, a live stream. And then after that, we walk silently to the Queen Victoria Market, to the place we believe they were buried. It's a great day. This this year it falls on a Saturday. We always commemorate on the day that they were hung. It's a great day to bring your kids around. They can look at the monument. They can look at the story. They can see what it's all about. They can join the dots to 2024. It's not about, you know, important speakers It's about ordinary people because it was ordinary people that created this monument. And we're the survivors of the Tanamura Morbohine Commemoration Committee. There's only two of us left. We're a little bit distressed. The fact that the 
effort that we made has not been taken up by other activists around the country. Because everywhere you look, there are monuments to Australians who died overseas fighting other people's wars. There are very few, if any, monuments to all the people who died in the frontier wars, men and women and children who were massacred and destroyed for resisting the colonisation process. So join us on Saturday the 20th of January at midday, and if you can't join us, listen in to the first hour of the commemoration. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. If you want more information, you can go, you can go to the uh, Facebook page, tunner, T-U-N-N-E-R, mall.org, and uh, you'll get all the information you need, or you can even go to my personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, or the Anarchist Media Institute um, webpage, or the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest webpage, and the list goes on and on. Let's move on. The housing affordability crisis, the crisis we didn't have to have. You know, everybody's crying. They're, you know, the violins are going. Everybody's talking about the only way out of this situation is to build more housing, give the private sector its head. Now, suddenly, I've just noticed a slight change in the public commentary. Now, we've been perched on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House every week, February to December, raising the issue of public housing with no success. You know, a little bit of burst here, a little bit of burst there, but no success in terms of changing government policy into actually putting a lot of investment into public housing, not community housing, which is private, not affordable housing, which is private, not all these bodgy little schemes you hear about, you know, by governments at the state and federal level, but actually increasing the number of public homes because public homes should not just be available for people in a crisis situation. The whole point about public housing is that it gives people security of tenure. The thing is, when you're in private rental agreement, you have no security of tenure. In public housing, we hear stories constantly of families who've brought up their children, who've been gone to the same school, the same high school, have had security of tenure. And the other important thing is that in Victoria, public housing, I'm not sure in the rest of Australia how much they pay, but you pay 25% of your income. So if you're on a pension, you pay 25% of your pension. If you're on a wage, you pay 25% of your wage. And the thing about public housing, and I know this is this is so simple, and that's the that's that's what makes it makes us so annoyed. It's so simple. See in Victoria, which I'm familiar with, you could build a hundred you could you could actually sorry, house a hundred thousand people in public housing every year, and that's a million people in a decade. If you use the money which was raised from stamp duty on housing sales, which could be anywhere between six to eight billion dollars every year, if you earmark that for public housing, maybe ten percent 
running costs, 90%, and most of that you could actually use that 90% for spot purchasing. See, the beauty is very simple. I mean, capitalism is supposedly about competition. Currently, housing is monopolised. A monopoly is a private sector monopoly. doesn't matter what you call it, whether it's community affordable, whether you buy your own home, you're an investor, it's, it's a private commodity, right? The more public people you house in public housing, the less need for people to rent in the private housing market because public housing should be available to anybody who cannot afford to buy in the private market. Has the number of public units and houses increase, the need for private rentals decrease, therefore prices decrease at the lower end of the market. At the same time, if you're not paying 40, 50, 60% of your income on a mortgage or rent, you've got all this extra disposable income which can go into the economy, which is an economic boost. It is just so simple. And I'm just talking, I'm not talking about anything radical. This is minor reform garbage. Minor reform. So if you are interested in the public housing struggle, we will be back on the steps of the Victorian Parliament on the first Thursday in February at midday. We'll be there between midday and 1pm from February to December 2024. Now, you can do the same thing in your part of the world, whether it's West Australia, Tasmania, South Australia, ACT, Northern Territory. Why not set up New South Wales, even <laughs> Queensland. Why not set up a small vigil outside your parliament, state parliament, regarding public housing? Because it's all very well to be part and parcel of the mix, you know, in social media, the virtual world, the legacy media, the asocial media, the private, the corporate owned media. But the fact is, Unless you've got feet on the ground, nothing changes. Think about it. Simple concept. Get your friends together, get a banner, sit on the steps. We only do it once a week. There's not enough of us to do it every day. You could do it every day. It's just that the fact that when those state politicians go up and down those stairs, not through the back door, which most of them do, they can actually see there are people who are still advocating for public housing. Let's move on. Oh, oh, the Australian-US alliance. Have you noticed the little cracks which are appearing? You know, you've got a warmonger, you know, Mr Biden in power now and maybe after the next election, was it later this year in November 2024, you may have a megalomaniac in power. You know, it's a big decision. Do we have a megalomaniac or do we have a um, warmonger in power? And obviously the Australian government is beginning to be a little bit uneasy about the way the Australian military forces has been incorporated into the US forces. And we saw a little bit of independence when the Albanese-led uh, federal government refused to send a warship to the Red Sea just in the last few weeks. And there are these little cracks appearing, these little cracks. You know, the Australian government's not very happy 
regarding their Gaza situation. Maybe, as we suggested at the beginning of the program, they should recall the Australian ambassador from Israel back to Canberra to show their displeasure at the way the carnage is occurring. Hmm? So these little cracks appearing. So all those of you involved in uh, involved in campaigns to have an independent Australian foreign policy, this is the time to become active and widen those cracks because our complete dependence on the US military industrial complex is the biggest mistake that this country has made since Federation. Because, you see, the US is the home of the cut and runs. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, North and East Syria, the list goes on and on. Because the US is about the US. It's not about little old Australia. And if we can't hold our head high in this part of the world, nothing's going to change. Well, it may change. We may find ourselves be part of another nation. You never know. So I'm pleased to see these cracks appearing. So let's widen the cracks in 2024 and see if we can get independent foreign policy, you know. When I listen to the Liberal Party hacks, I, I dread, dread what's going to happen. Now, I've been told this year is a feast of parliamentary democracy, a festival of parliamentary democracy. There's going to be half the world is going to be involved in elections. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. Look, parliamentary democracy is dead. See, parliamentary democracy is a very simple concept. You elect a representative who theoretically makes decisions for you for the next three to four years and if they don't keep any of their promises, there's nothing you can do to the next election where you elect another batch. It's a very simple concept. It's about representation. It's not about you being involved in the decision-making process. It's about you electing somebody who will then make decisions for you. And people are wondering why so many people are becoming disillusioned with the parliamentary process. Because, see, the parliamentary process can't deliver. And it can't deliver for one very good reason, corporate capitalism. The private investment for private profit, duopolies and monopolies. It's all very well, you know, calling investigation into the supermarkets. It's another thing passing legislation to uh, kneecap them. And currently, we find ourselves in an exceptionally difficult situation as prices increase. Because you see, the dereg- I'm going to use it, I'm going to use the phrase, the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, you know, period tsunami we've been involved in for the last five decades has finally come to an end. You see, what's happened today, and we see it even with the ALP government federally, and we see it at a state level constantly, what we see today is that the type of legislation which is introduced into Parliament is not legislation which assists people. It's legislation which assists the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication and the legislation that is, 
exists the 8% of Australians who've got disposable income who can invest in the stock market or real estate or whatever. So that's the issue. What's the point of having a parliamentary process if you can't introduce legislation that actually assists the population as a whole? For example, I mean, look, I think of myself as a hard-boiled, you know, idiot most of the time. But when I see private charities on on Australian social media or television or radio begging for me to give them money to send Australian kids to public schools, I realise that the legalised theft, the legalised theft which occurs in this country is causing a great deal of damage to an increasing number of Australians. 25 million people living on a resource-rich continent and we can't even look about the basic needs of our children. Give me a break. When I see that one third of corporations paid no tax last year and another third paid voluntary taxation, you know, when I see the way that this country's natural resources are stolen legally, that's legalised theft, stolen legally by transnational corporations and most of their profits are sent you know, to their shareholders. When I see us living in a society where the interest of the shareholder trumps the interest of the citizen, you begin to wonder what type of society we have. When I see a society where the private sector dominates every sphere of human existence where the public sector is almost non-existent and the collective and cooperative sector which should be the third leg of any economy doesn't exist in this country you begin to realise how difficult things have become and if we think that through working up the right channels if we think by begging and beseeching if we think by giving to private charities, if we think that by waiting for the next election that things are going to change, well, you're sorely mistaken. Because ultimately, we, you and me, we are the people we've been waiting for. It's not our religious leaders. It's not our secular leaders. It's not a social media. It's not the legacy media. It's not our neighbours. It's not all those people who are part of the somebody should do something about that tribe or I'm going to do something about that tribe. It's those people who speak the truth and then act on that truth because there is truth. And that truth is very simple. It's not the garbage that's peddled day in and day out on a social media. It's the reality of facts and the facts point to the, to the position and we feel it every day that the gap between people is growing in the society and there is nobody there that is willing to take on the corporate sector. Nobody. So we are the people we've been waiting for. Hopefully we'll be able to broadcast to you over the next 50 weeks. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week. 
broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave pleasant messages. I don't respond to naughty messages on 0439 395489. You can email me at info at or anarchistmedia.org. You can go to a number of uh, YouTube channels. Public interest before corporate interest. I've got about 300 um, sessions there on different topics. You can go to a look at some of the lecture series I've been doing, Joseph, on uh, radical, pivotal moments in radical 19th century Australian radical history. You see, nothing is, nothing is new. It's all happened before, and that's the beauty of history. To, jo- uh, to uh, what is it? JosephToscano.nam, N-A-A-R-M. You can go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website, info at pibc.net. You can join online. Isn't that extraordinary? Have a look. Have a look at the Constitution. Do you want to join us? Join us. Obviously, we are public interest before corporate interest is um, a party which uh, is looking at uh, political change through the parliamentary process, but also through extra parliamentary action. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. And guess what? You can send me letters. Yes, I still write letters. You can send them to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. And don't forget about the kite flying for Gaza this Sunday, the 14th of January, 11am to 12pm at the Malaha Hang Reserve Heidelberg West in Melbourne. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station and just in case you you don't want to see some hollywood inspired piece of garbage and pay lots of money don't forget about the tanaminawaya mulbohina commemoration which is on saturday the 20th of january which is next saturday starting at midday the first hour of the ceremony is broadcast live on community radio 3cr and if you're listening to this program somewhere in the ether and you can't make to the ceremony and you want to listen to the first hour, you can always go to 3cr.org.au. Well, I think we've almost run out of time, which is, uh, which is very good for you because you don't have to listen to me. So thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Here we go. The sacred cows have walked away. They've got their kites in their hand. They're going to the kite for Gaza rally on the fourth Sunday, the fourteenth of January, from eleven a.m. to two p.m. Malahang Reserve. And those of you who think you need a, a corporate kite, you can make your own kite. Two sticks, join them together, a bit of string, put a bit of brown paper. I'll use Christmas paper on it. Tie a string to it. Put a cut, you know, put a little, you know, tail on it. You always want a tail. And run, 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 and your kite will fly for Gaza. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Ah, here we go. We're about to be destruction. Death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 
10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.